scripture passage this morning is Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1590. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, enlighten us. Enlighten us to this familiar passage of the birth narrative of Jesus. Help us to see more deeply. Help us to see more profoundly what's going on here in the birth of a Savior, in the birth of God become flesh, and what it is that you're trying to teach us. And show us in your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Every good story starts with conflict. Every good story starts with conflict. If you don't have conflict, if you don't have tension, then there really is no intrigue. There really is no draw to the story. And oftentimes... This conflict is portrayed in a variety of ways. But one way in particular in which it is portrayed is the clashing of kings. Or, if you like an old western, there's room for only one sheriff in this town. And that's what we see here in Luke chapter 2 is very subtly, Luke, the writer of this gospel, is portraying for us a contrast within which a conflict is seen. The conflict of who really is king. Whose stomping grounds this really is. And I hope as we look at the passage this morning, we will see that. So the theme this morning is... Christ's birth shows us the power of our sovereign God and the cost of our salvation. Christ's birth shows us the power of our sovereign God and the cost of our salvation. And we're going to look at this passage in three points. The first is rooted in history, verses 1 through 3. The second is the real sovereign, verse 4 and 5. And then last is the humiliation of the Savior, verse 6 and 7. 
So let's look at this first point, rooted in history. Uh, I think often when we read this passage, one of the first things we think about is a kind of detail that Luke includes. Luke states to Theophilus, whom he's writing this gospel, that the reason he's doing so is that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus, I'm writing this to you so that you may know the certainty, the reality, that the fact that these things really took place. And Luke's attempt in order to do that is something that roots this gospel in history and real events that actually happened. And that's why at the beginning of chapter 2, when he begins to illustrate or to write down the birth of Jesus, he gives history markers, time stamps. And he says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That means that the gospel that we believe in, the gospel that we hold to be good news, is only good news because it actually happened. The Christmas we celebrate is not a very fanciful version, religious version, of Santa Claus. It's rooted in history. These are real events that took place. And Luke is making sure that we know that. Making sure that we believe that. Making sure that we have certainty about the things that we've been taught. That is to say, you can open up a history book and you can go to where Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor, emperor, and you can see how Caesar Augustus took censuses. And you can go in a history book and you can figure out when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And you can say, this is when Jesus, the Christ, was born. Our Savior. The one who is eternal. Has a birthday. Stamps himself upon time and space. Becomes a part of our history. Human history. I don't know about you, but that to me is profound. And it increases my faith to know what's being said here is not some quaint religious story, but is reality. It happened. But let's look at that second point, the real sovereign. Verse 4 and 5, we're told Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Why am I calling this the real sovereign? Okay, well, there's a couple things that need to be explained here to help us see what Luke is trying to portray. If we don't know some of the background, if we don't know some of the history, we might not really see the full picture. 
But Luke understood that the people he was writing to in the original context would grasp this, would understand this. And if you do any digging in history, you will find out that Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And Caesar Augustus was the one whose military campaign brought the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire and the way that they viewed their Caesars, you will discover that they deified them. And so, Caesar Augustus was the son of God, is what they said, and he was called the Prince of Peace. Son of God, Prince of Peace. He's the one who brought peace to the world. In fact, there's trying, there's, there's here in the original Greek the concept of making this much bigger than is actually going on. Here in your NIV it says, Caesar Augustus issued a, a decree that the census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Actually, what it says is, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire world. This is Caesar Augustus. He's flexing his God muscle. He's saying, I am the king of the world. And I count everyone in this world because every counted head means more taxes for me. And Caesar Augustus is the one who decrees that everyone must be counted and go back to their hometown in order to register. This son of God, prince of peace, has a claim to be the real sovereign. The real sovereign of the world. Very subtly, Luke is showing in our passage this morning that the real sovereign, the one who is orchestrating all these events, is actually God. And this is how I'm going to show you. Have you ever wondered why it is exactly that God did not simply choose a woman born in Bethlehem who lived in Bethlehem to be the one who would carry Jesus? Are there not descendants of David in Bethlehem? Have you ever wondered why that is? That this woman, Mary, is chosen. She lives in Galilee, in Nazareth, with her betrothed, Joseph. But we know that the prophecy in Micah, chapter 5, says, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So, in order for prophecy to be fulfilled... This Jesus, this child, must be born in Bethlehem. But God chose a woman in Galilee whose betrothed is in Galilee as well, who lives in Nazareth. Well, how are we going to solve this problem? Well, this is how we solve this problem. God, who is the real sovereign, who has promised to bring the Son of God the true prince of peace whose king whose king
king's hearts are like water in his hands. Who is the one who has the true decree? Uses Caesar Augustus, the king of the entire known world, to make a census, which would then cause Joseph and Mary to then have to travel to Bethlehem. God is the real sovereign in this story. God is the one who's really in control, who is operating all these events, coordinating them perfectly so that what he prophesied, what he proclaimed to occur in his word would happen. And the reason why God didn't simply choose a woman who was born in Bethlehem, who lived in Bethlehem, And so that we could read Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, and say, wow, God, you're the one orchestrating these events. You're the one who uses the Caesar of the world, the Roman world, to make sure that Joseph and Mary come to Bethlehem and that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. You're the one who's in control. You're the real sovereign. Not the pseudo-sovereign. Caesar Augustus, who's called a son of God, prince of peace. No. This little baby born in Bethlehem. He's the son of God. He's the prince of peace. And he's the one who will come to be the ruler of the nations. So what does that do for us? Well, I hope it helps you see and grasp and understand that the same God who moved all these people around in the Roman Empire just to make sure that his son was born in Bethlehem is also the same God who orchestrates the lives of your, the events of your life. The providential father whom the Heidelberg Catechism says not even a hair can fall from your head without his will is the one who is running your life, orchestrating the events of your life, bringing those things about, and he is to be trusted. He is to be the one you can count on. The real sovereign is our father because of Jesus Christ, his son, What about the humiliation of a Savior? One of the strangest details about Luke's account here in chapter 2 is that he's very specific to mention the manger. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. That manger will then be a sign given to the shepherds. You will find him lying in a manger. And the question is, why the manger? Why the feeding trough? This is important for us to grasp because I think that through the Christmas traditions and the things that we've, um, we've done with Christmas, we've romanticized the manger, haven't we? 
all these pretty little lit up nativity scenes and all it's so peaceful and sweet. Oh, and there's little baby Jesus. He's he's laying lying in that little that little wooden thing. It's so cute and and we think this is such a pretty scene, don't we? A manger is a feeding trough. It's what cows eat out of. It's disgusting. It's dirty. It's dusty. It's of the earth. That's what Jesus was placed in. The idea here, I think, is something we need to... um, Take time to understand. It's something we need to take time to develop. A lot of people have looked at this passage and said there's no room for them in the inn. The word here, inn, is actually more, more like guest room. There was no room for them in the guest room. And in fact, in those days, in those times, uh, it wouldn't be like they would be put out in the stable, but the animals would be brought into the main room of the house at night to stay warm. So here they are out in the main room of the house where the animals are being kept because the guest room is full. There's people in the guest room already. And so here they are and they don't have a crib or anything to put baby Jesus in. So they wrap him in claws and they put him in the feeding trough for animals. This is the humiliation of our Savior. Later in Luke's very gospel, the ninth chapter, Jesus himself will say, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And just like that song that we sang earlier in our, in our um, worship service, Lord, you are rich beyond all splendor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich eternally, he had everything he needed, yet for your sakes he became poor, he became incarnate, so that you through his incarnation, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus' very birth begins with an emptying of himself. He's placed in a where animals come to eat. That's how it begins. It begins with him there in a feeding trough, and it ends with him hanging on a criminal's cross. This is why I said our theme is Christ's birth shows us the power of our sovereign God to orchestrate all events in the known world to bring about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But it also tells us the cost of our salvation. Because the picture of Jesus lying in a manger is not to be some quaint, some cute, some romanticized nativity scene. It's supposed to be a picture for us. And for the shepherds who will then be told that you'll find him lying in a manger. That this is the king, the eternal one who has come down from heaven. And who has humbled himself to the place 
of being feeding, put in place in a feeding trough. He was rich. He became poor. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the humiliation of our Savior. The pouring out that he has for us for all his life from infancy. And these humble circumstances to his death on a criminal's tree. The cost of our salvation is knowing that Jesus came to give himself to us entirely to pour himself out for us to empty himself as Philippians 2 describes that emptying begins with a feeding trough and it ends with a cross and it's an emptying that brings before us the great and wonderful truth that we were saved because Christ redeemed us, saved us. We were saved because Christ, who was rich, became poor so that us in our poverty, in our sin, be- could become rich. The power of our sovereign God is seen and the fact that he empties himself, putting on humanity, being placed in a feeding trough as an infant child, being raised in poverty to ascend to the cross of his death for our sake. You see, the world wants to look at that. The world wants to look at humility like that, humbleness like that, meekness like that, and say that that actually is a weakness. You can't show weakness. You can't show humility. You can't can't be humble. You have to think that you've got it all put together. You have to act like you've got it figured out, that you are the man, the woman, whatever it is. That's you. And so when we as Christian people say, no, the power of the Almighty God is seen in a weak Savior gasping his last breath on the cross for our salvation, they don't understand it. Oh, people of God, brothers and sisters, power of the sovereign God is seen in the humiliation of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's why this Christmas, if you really want to express the Christmas spirit, it's humility. It's knowing and seeing Others as greater than you, more important than you, more significant than you. It's being willing to pour yourself out 
for another's benefit. It's being able to look at our little baby Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the real Son of God, the Prince of Peace, lying in a feeding trough and say, that's Christmas. That's salvation. That's hope. That's peace. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have come into history through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you so much that in the birth of Jesus, you show us your power, that you are the sovereign God who controls and orchestrates all events to bring salvation to us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you show us the cost of our salvation and the humility of Jesus' birth and how we are called to be humble people, to know and to praise you for the way that you've brought our salvation to us in the humiliation of Jesus Christ, in his birth, in his life, in his death. You show us the way to exaltation is through humiliation. You show us that real power is found in not using your power for your own benefit but for the benefit of others. We ask, Lord, that you would help us. Pray that our faith would increase knowing that the Christmas we believe in is a Christmas that happened in history. Pray that our faith would be increased knowing that the same God who orchestrated all events to bring about Jesus Christ's birth in Bethlehem is the same God who's orchestrating the events of our lives to increase our faith and our hope and our only comfort, Jesus Christ. And pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us the way of humility as you walked it in your life and in your death, that we may be conformed more to your image. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.